Welcome to episode 310 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I have just been enjoying so much this series on soteriology. It's like a mini series. Like basically, yeah. I think we've we've leaned into this idea that the podcast, of course, is is all about Jesus. It's all about theology. And theology, by its nature, the best way you can approach it is in a systematic way. So this is just what we do now. I mean, I know there are lots of podcasts that are like, hey, we're doing a series on this. So we're doing like the five solas. I would say everything is our jam now. Every everything yeah. reformed is our jam. It's true. It's true. Yeah. We're, so we, 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 I don't know. I don't even know how many times, how long it's been since we started this, but we just decided we're just going to go through all of the points of systematic theology. And that's like, that's the podcast now. All the so, points. But it's nice because we do have these little, like, I don't know, like story arcs. I'm like a comic book guy. So like you have a comic book series, but each comic book is broken into these like story arcs of seven, eight issues that follow a particular story within the broader story. That's what this is. This is like a story arc for our podcast. But I like it's, that. It's the greatest story ever told arc is what this is. <laughs> you like that? I do like that. That's like the best setup ever for an episode. And on this one, we're going to be talking about repentance. Yes. Now, some who are longtime listeners might say, haven't you talked about this before? And to them, I would say, Stop it. You know we have, but <laughs> yes, this is so good. It's yes. not just that we're going to talk about it again, but we're kind of talking about it in this new way. This is the beauty of theology. Like you can just keep turning this around, seeing it in new and different ways because God is so big that he brings his knowledge that he gives to us about himself into our lives in different ways. So we're, we're talking about repentance that is, of course, coming. But first, and, and I, I say this very seriously, if we don't do the affirmations and denials, the people revolt. They do. They want they them. They, they deny them. us. They deny us. <laughs> we want you to affirm us. By the way, if you'd like to affirm us, a really nice way to do that is you can just go to like iTunes, for instance, or Apple, Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, and just give whatever review you like. We read those things. And occasionally people provide great reviews. We received a couple recently. They're of great encouragement to us, and we do take them seriously. So it doesn't help people necessarily find the podcast, but it is the kind of thing where, and anybody shopped online knows this, you're looking for an item that you know nothing about. And of course you go to the reviews to get a sense for what it's like. And the reviews really do help people get a sense for what this conversation that you're listening to is like. So we'd appreciate it if you go and do that thing. If you don't want to, then that's also okay. Why? Because this whole thing is free of charge. Just do it's what you true. want. It's true. And part of the reason it's free of charge is because we have several people who support our show. Uh, you can do that in a number of ways. Um, lots of people are praying for the show, which is the biggest thing, yes. I think. Um, and, and lots of people send us encouraging emails and tell us stories about things they've learned. And, and you know, um, people tell us all sorts of really humbling things about like their journey into Reformed theology and the role we've played. But another way that people support us is through our Patreon, uh, which is uh, not something you have to do. We're never gonna we're never gonna make the show something behind a paywall. Um, you can you can take that to the bank. Uh, you're always gonna have access to the show, but uh, there are some costs that we do have to pay for, and we have a number of supporters who help us to do that. And I think we have some new supporters this week, don't we? <laughs> 
sorry. I'm laughing because, again, I, if you've listened for a while, you know the inside baseball <laughs> on this. Tony and I have zero preparation. We get on. What you're getting is an authentic conversation between the two of us. And in part, the reason why we don't prepare is so you get that. What you're hearing yeah. is unedited, unvarnished, no safety net, us hitting record and talking. And I w- we're so on the same page that I was already thinking about bringing this up. And I do want to affirm and particularly thank two new supporters this week, Sanjay and Sarah, who have said, you know what, listen, I fulfilled the obligations of giving at my own congregation to my own church, and I have a little bit left over. I'd like to put that toward the Reformed Brotherhood podcast. Thank you so much. What that does is it makes sure that this does remain free of charge. It covers our all of our incidentals. And Tony and I are brainstorming and creating vision for what the future of this podcast and the Reformed Brotherhood looks like. And all of those financial support, all of that stuff helps to bring about a greater dream, a greater vision, a greater reach to bring people into a place where they're encouraged and they're excited about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you, Sarah and Sanjay. Yeah. Thank you for coming alongside and being a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jesse, why don't we get into some affirmations and denials, give the people what they want. Absolutely. So why don't you start this week? <laughs> How dare you? And uh, why don't we do uh, why don't we do your choice? Which which direction you want to start? Oh my goodness. I'm gonna go denial first. How do you feel about that? Let's That's fine with me. Let's end on the positive. So I'm gonna deny against um how should I say this? I'm going to deny against being too overly nuanced and disagreeable in your theological position. Ooh. So this is like a hundred percent personal experience this week for me. You and I have not talked about this. So I have a good friend whose mother uh, died very unexpectedly, very tragically and very suddenly. And I had the opportunity to, to along with my wife, attend the funeral this week. And this was a funeral that took place at a Lutheran church. So with great deference to our Lutherans in residence, Chad Bird and Eric Sorensen, comes the following tale. So we come to this uh, lovely Lutheran church. I receive a program, which really is like the liturgy for that service, which I I can get down with some liturgy. And uh, it's given to me by the pastor who is dressed in the vestments. I can also get down with some vestments. I don't know how you feel about that, but... That's a different episode. Some vestments, yeah, are kind of cool. So anyway, different episode. So we sit down and I'm taking in the surroundings. It's a lovely church and uh, we're sitting in the back. And all of a sudden my wife leans over to me and she says uh, the words that every person who enjoys a theological discussion longs to hear. She says to me in a whisper, what is intinction? (laughs) Oh man. And I said, how do you know that word? And she said, I'm looking through it and it says the, the communion will be administered by intinction. So we, we have this, like, you know, things are happening. People are filing in. There's this, this lovely sense of celebrating this, this woman's life. And, um, we have been talking and uh, having great conversation with this friend of ours whose mother had, had died and, and trying to explain the gospel, wanting to talk about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ closely. And uh, their, their walk of life with their own admission has been far from Jesus. And so we had this quick debate and she's saying to me, you know, so what do we do about that when I explain it? And, you know, of course, the pastor gets up and he gives the, the typical Lutheran spiel, which is like communion is coming. And we invite all those who are baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and believe in the elements as representation of his body and his blood to participate. And I would say under any other circumstance, and we go on record on this as sip it and don't dip it. We go on record as our distinctions <laughs> kind of uh, in differentiation of the Lutheran perspective on communion. You can find all those episodes. And so here we are in a place of wanting to be witnesses to the light and love of Jesus Christ in wanting to obey him and also being wanting to have good fidelity to our theological convictions. And I think you might guess what I did in this moment. I undertook- slapped the cup out of the guy's hand, <laughs> right? So here's the thing. And this is where the denial comes in. Though all those things I would want to do in service to our ministry and our witness in this in front of this couple who would no doubt, we talked about this briefly, would have noticed that we did not participate in the Lord's Supper and would have tried to understand why that was, especially in light of the the ceremony and the funeral that was taking place. Um, I very proudly, and again, in a situation where I wouldn't normally have done, undertook an, uh, communion and did so by way of intention. And so the denial comes in to be careful about this kind of thing. Yeah. I'm not saying that I necessarily got this right in this particular instance, but this idea of wanting to bear witness to the truth and to show people what it is to follow Jesus Christ and do so in a way that preserves the witness where there are some theological distinctions of great nuance, where we can still be of great witness to those whom we love, especially those outside the family of Christ, to understand and to bring them in in a winsome way to that, where this would have been and would have caused great damage in the witness and would have caused great confusion in a way that wouldn't have been helpful. We were, I was glad to do that very thing. So I will say I did do a little dipping and I did take the communion in a way that was, you know, of course, like I'm sure this, by the way, I do love in this instance that uh, the pastor did this thing where people were coming up, of course, this, this common cup with the, with the Dunkin' Donuts style dipping. And he would say, you know, this is the body given for you, which by the way, my wife, I've trained her now whenever she is in a place <laughs> where the community is being administered. She always now pays attention to whether the pastor says this is the body broken or this is the body <laughs> given. And speaking she was of like, aggressive theological nuances, <laughs> right? don't well, ever I'm, say broken in front of Jesse. Yes, exactly. So of course this pastor said, and I say, of course, you'll get to that in a second. He said, this is the body given for you. And Jen was like, uh, my wife was like, he said given. I was like, because he's Lutheran <laughs> and because the liturgy is specific yeah. and he's committed to that. So like, again, like that, that's where my heart is at on this, right? So I want people yeah. to hear that. Um, so we went up and did this and he, he did this lovely thing where you, you go up and he says, this is the body given for you. This is the blood spilled for you. And I can't tell you how much I love receiving that. I love hearing yeah. that word given to me, especially if that's the method in which you're doing it, where you're going up and you're receiving kind of a common cup situation. So I, I chuckled because I, I'm just so taken with that. So I said to the pastor, thank you. And you know, there's a line of people behind me. As I walked away, he's like, you're welcome. And I just <laughs> loved that so much. Like, I feel yeah. like you should thank the minister who's giving that to you, who's, who's proclaiming that word over you. So this is a long way of saying like, I'm just be careful, loved ones. We have our theological distinctions. I think you also have to be careful about that, especially in light of like the testimony that you're promulgating, especially in front of others. And so in this particular instance, uh, I was convicted that the appropriate thing to do was to go and to receive the communion and to do so in a way that was God glorifying, God honoring, and also would be able to help me have conversation about it later on. Maybe one day, I'm actually excited, but maybe one day we'll talk about that. And that would be a glorious day. Yeah. You know, there's in particular with the sacraments, but I think this principle extends out to other 
other areas of Christian theology and Christian uh, witness is this idea of something that's irregular but valid. And this is actually a a topic that came up in our uh, Reformed Brotherhood Telegram chat, which you can join at uh, t.me slash Reformed Brotherhood. This distinction between irregular yet valid versus regular and sometimes invalid, like... So irregular refers to like the form, the external form that something takes. In this case, intinction, which is taking the the bread and dipping it in the the juice or the wine and then eating like this new combined soggy bread thing, which we'd say is irregular. That's not the way that Christ instituted the sacrament. That's not the way that the Bible commands us to observe the sacrament. And so, yes, it's it's not good. We don't want you to do it. You shouldn't do that. But that doesn't mean it's not valid. And there are times that I think um, in the Christian life where you're going to be faced with sort of an almost a no-win situation. Mm. You can either, quote-unquote, sin against uh, against the sacrament, or you can sin by participating in the irregular, irregular sacrament, or you can sin by wounding the conscience of your brothers and sisters. Right. I, I don't. I don't necessarily think either one would be a sin. I'm kind of using that phrasing colloquially, but in this case, it's still a valid sacrament. It's still a valid application exactly. of the sacrament. It's just in a regular form. Yes. And and a lot of a lot of Baptists would look at infant baptism the same way. It's still valid. It's still baptism. And although you know we, we wouldn't normally say to do it that way, there are many Baptists that would say that's irregular, but it's still valid. And so those Baptists would not would not force a person who was baptized in the Presbyterian or Lutheran church as an infant to become rebaptized if they join their church. Others would say it's not valid. So this is an area of disagreement that I think we have to have charity on. Um, and then also sometimes we have to recognize we have to have charity for people who think it's more of a significant thing than we do. I'm sure there right. are people who are, are aghast at the fact that Jesse did this. I'm not particularly aghast, <laughs> but, um, but thanks for setting it up like that. <laughs> <laughs> but we should we should have charity when we see someone who either disagrees with us in a in a more permissive way or disagrees with us in a less permissive way. Right. And I think you're right. Like we can sometimes take our theological nuances and make them dividing lines um, that are not appropriate. Um, and it's good to have a little bit of I don't know groundedness down like down to earthness about. Yes. Yes. what this actually is. I, I'm not one of those people that wants to be like super, super paranoid about like the coming persecution. But I think the reality is like Christianity is in decline in the West. That's a, just a historical obvious fact. And there will there there already are lots of Christians who find themselves in situations where the, a congregation that meets their theological position is not easily available to them. Right. So a, a Presbyterian who lives in in the middle of nowhere and the only thing available to them is a Baptist church, they may have to make some concessions and they may have to prioritize, well, there's a, there's a PCA church that'll baptize my baby, or there's a Baptist church that will actually preach the gospel. Which right. one do I go to? And and if if in that situation I'm not your pastor, but I'm going to make a sort of pastoral statement anyways— in that situation, if you choose the proper mode and recipient of baptism over the actual gospel, then you're doing it wrong. And I right. think in this case, it's a similar kind of calculus. I can either allow this irregular form of the sacrament to preach the gospel to me and preach the gospel to everyone else, exactly. or I can stand on this this particular theological nuance and allow it to potentially become a stumbling block, not only to myself, I'm not getting the gospel, I'm so yes. focused on the irregularity right. of the form, right. I'm not getting the gospel, or even worse to those around you who might be distracted or might be um, 
disturbed by your lack of participation. So I, I commend you. You did a good thing. That was a good choice. <laughs> Not that you were asking for my commendation, but I'm giving it to yeah, you freely. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's as good a summary, I think, of the whole event as I could uh, put forth myself. It was, there's something to be said for like, let's let our theology practically breathe and be prevalent in a particular situation. And I'm telling you, we did debate it. Uh, or at least I yeah. debated it because I was like, "What? what is the right option here, quote unquote? And yeah. uh, at the end of the day, I think uh, it was it was to go forward. So everything you said was was right on. So hopefully that, maybe that ministers to somebody or they've been in a similar situation, either they can feel like less guilt yeah. in something that they did in that kind of situation, or it helps us to understand again, this perseverance of going forward with like the, the gospel focus. I like this idea of like the irregular. I think that is totally right on. That's what it was for yeah. me. And again, I was just like, it's almost like when you, when I work for me, at least when I get to hang out in a Lutheran church, it's like visiting a foreign country, which is like super awesome. Cause you're kind of like, <laughs> I, I feel like it's like going to Britain. Cause you're like, they're speaking English, but it's, yeah. it's a little bit different. <laughs> and uh, you know what I'm saying? Like it was, I do, but, it I was do. but it was great. It was lovely in its own way. Like in some ways it helps to reemphasize like the distinctives that we have yeah. and whether or not we ought to, whether or not we actually feel conviction in those distinctions, like aside from just like this, is the way we're raised or it's like, because like whenever I go into a situation like that, I think, am I uncomfortable in this moment because this is against my tradition or am I comfortable in this moment because I have conviction against it? Yeah. And just being able to parse out the difference between those two is like an insanely helpful exercise, but yeah. you often don't find yourself being like challenged with that exercise unless like you're actually in that situation. So, yeah. and again, like I do love like this funeral service was so lovely because it had an amazing liturgy of which part of it was like the confession. Like we confessed to each other. There was absolution. And then there was like, like I can get behind this, the taking of the Lord's supper to emphasize that Christ is the resurrection and the life, that there is something that we talked about beyond just like memorialization in receiving of communion that we receive spiritual strength and nourishment. Like, and of course, in the Lutheran tradition, that's a real quantity. Yeah. And I think there is something that we can learn from them without going like full consubstantiation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So it's, it's your turn. You, you got to well, go denial though. Uh, I'll, well, to save time and because my really nice pun that I was working on for my affirmations and denials won't work if we do it in reverse. I'm going to combine my affirmations <laughs> okay. and denials. Okay, that's fine. So my affirmation was this website that I'm sure if you're on social media in the Reformed or Evangelical world you've seen, it is www.thestateoftheology.com. Mm. So every year Ligonier um, does a survey, and they, they survey um, various questions um, about theology each year it's a little bit different and kind of focuses on like what the big hot button questions are and they present it in a very nice way. So Jesse, I know that you're a stickler and also an aficionado for statistics and graphs. And I also am, <laughs> I love a good data presentation and they for do sure. a really good job. So that all the data is available and you can slice it and dice it, but I all sorts of different views. Um, the one that I find most useful is you can present the data and they have by default, you see the total information for all U S adult respondents, and then you can filter it. And I have mine set to be filtered on church attendance at least once a week. So, so the biggest difference in terms of where you see things shift is between people who attend church once a week and people who attend church less than once a week. Um, anything more frequent than that. And there's not a huge change, anything less frequent than that. And there's not a huge change. So that's where the data kind of breaks. So I'm affirming 
this survey and the work that Ligonier is doing. And I know that Ligonier uses this to also kind of sculpt their kind of roadmap for the the theology teaching that they're going to do over the next, you know, X years. Where my denial comes in is not the State of Theology website, but the State of Theology in reality. So unfortunately, <laughs> these uh, these data points are not particularly encouraging. Um, right. They're encouraging for people like me and Jesse who are doing podcasts to try to address some of this because we've got our work cut out for us and there's always going to be a need to you know propagate good theology and, and the confessions are the way that we believe is the best way to do that. It's this time-tested pattern of sound words that's been given to us by the church that is a faithful summary of scripture. But here's a good example. And I I don't I know it seems like I just love to beat up on people like James White and William Lane Craig and whoever the the heretical teaching of the week seems to center around. But the biggest like major controversy that's been going on recently and James White and the sort of what I'm calling the the Grace Baptist Theological Seminary School of Thought, the Grace Baptist Theology Proper kind of method, has been around theology proper. And the the origin of this debate sort of centered around like, I don't understand what the big deal is. Why is everybody making such a big deal out of the fact that like God's essence and his attributes are identical and identical to each other? Or or why is everyone making such a big deal out of the fact that God, in, in James White's view, God seems to change in the incarnation? Here is why everybody's making a big deal out of it. So there's a couple different statements in the first earliest part of the doctor or the, the survey that has specifically to do with um, theology proper. So the first, the first uh, statement is, quote, God is a perfect being and cannot make a mistake. And so... Overall, uh, the U.S. public, it looks like it's about, so 15% of people somewhat agree and 51% strongly agree, like 65% of the U.S. public, uh, irrespective of whether they attend church or not, uh, agree with that statement. That's good. That's actually a good thing. So whether or not they actually believe in God, they understand that that's what the word God means, is that he cannot make a mistake. He's a perfect being. And for those who attend church more than, uh, at least once a week, uh, it's it's almost 90%. So that's actually really good. But then when you go down to question four or statement four, quote, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Only 52% of the U.S. public agree with that statement. And what is this? 17% and 37%. So what is that like? 56%? Am I doing my math right? 17 plus 37? Is that right? <laughs> that's right, that's right. So 56% of the American church, people who attend church at least once a week, 56% of them agree that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Mm. So 56% of people deny the classic understanding of what it means for God to be omniscient, that he does mm. not ever learn new information. Right. So when we talk about to kind of maybe like put a different spin on your affirmation, the reason sometimes we get so focused on some of these really nuanced technical definitions is because we now have empirical proof. Most of the American church who attend church at least once a week, they don't get it. They don't understand this. They don't realize that saying God learns and adapts to different circumstances is actually a totally false statement and is they're worshiping a God that the Bible does not present. The Bible presents right. a God who knows all things from the beginning to the end that all things come to pass according to his decree, and he knows the end from the beginning. So that's very different than a God who learns and adapts to circumstances. So when we when we hammer on these things, and like I said, I'm only kind of poking at James White because he has this recent controversy about God in the incarnation 
lacking knowledge. Like, I don't understand how he doesn't see why that's a problem, but he's been teaching this for over a decade now. That theology is making inroads in the church. So whether it's, you know, James White probably has a relatively small subset of the people who are, are you know, responding to this. This is all across the evangelical uh, Christian world that people are surveyed. So Reformed Baptists uh, who are listening to the dividing line are probably a super small subset of this. But this kind of theology is not something that would be readily, obviously wrong to most people in the church. So when they encounter someone like James White, who has an air of credibility about him because he has this longstanding ministry, because he wins a lot of debates, because he calls himself Dr. White, all of these things lead people to just take what he says at face value, even though it's flatly contradictory to the historical reformed and creedal you know, uh, confessions but more so because it's contradictory to what the Bible teaches about Jesus and the Incarnation. That's the that's the really bad part. Most people in the United States Church don't recognize that. So it's important for us to recognize these areas of deficiency, and that's why you'll see, like I said, Jesse and I will get really, really narrowed in on classical theism. Right. We'll spend hours talking about the nuances of what it means for God not to be changing or to be simple or all of these things, and it seems like, why are you spending so much time on this? This is why we're spending so much time on this. So this is an affirmation of the fact that Ligonier does this. It's a denial of the fact that the theology in the church is junk most of the time. It's really bad. People don't get it. And especially a denial of popular teachers who are actually furthering this problem. And those same popular teachers are going to point to this, this theology survey as the reason why their ministry is important. But at the same time, they're making things worse. So that's I don't know where to go from there. I'm, I'm just mad about it. It's, it's frustrating <laughs> that we have to even have that conversation when we're talking about re- reformed-ish evangelical people who are teaching at seminaries that just don't understand how far off they are. It's definitely worth going out to the stateoftheology.com because it's got great graphics. So if you're the kind of person that would like to see this summarized in a way that makes sense, I think um, Ligonier has done a really great job in that. And maybe this is a part of what you're saying is the results are new for 2022 in the U.S., So you're going to see really recent data. They do have some stuff for the UK that's a little bit older, but what you're going to get, I think, is a really clear, cogent, and crispy view of, I mean, these are people answering surveys. Uh, These are people really responding with, at least in theory, what they actually believe and what they actually understand. So apart from like, don't trust us, go out and take a look at this. It's a crowdsourced look at with the way people understand theology. And, you know, this is just so important for us because we need to understand that like, the way in which we view the world is influenced by the degree to which we hold the scriptures with whatever sense of fidelity we understand it to be. So we really, the reason why Tony and I harp on this so much is like what we're after is the truth. I think everybody, what everybody's after is the truth, but like this idea that like the way that we view the world, process the world, walk through the world, understand everything that's happening around us. If we're Christians, what we're saying is that all comes underneath the scriptures so then we need to have a proper understanding of the scriptures and we should always in every way be about getting after that with like this ferocity to really understand what God is teaching us. And so there's lots of places where we're going to have nuance, but there's all more places, would you say, where there's just, it's just plain yeah. and we need to be about the plain things. That's really what we're trying to get after. Yeah. And, and I know that there is sometimes this feeling that the things we're getting after are not the plain things, right? Like these nuances of divine simplicity and and God's essence and his attributes and then being like all these like really sort of esoteric technical things. 
But it's because that's the theology that underlies these main exactly. plain statements, right? We can say that God doesn't change. Uh, we can say that God is eternal, that he's infinite, that he is spirit. And we can say all those things, but then if we admit mixture in his composition, then we've actually denied all those things. So those statements are actually more logically foundational than statements like God knows all things. Well, God knows all things in part because his knowledge is his presence, and his presence is everywhere at all times in full potency. So all of these things work together, and it's it's just this survey and the results of it underscore more than ever why some of these, these higher-level technical debates that— um, I know sometimes people will give us feedback that like we're going over people's heads, but we're trying to stretch people who are listening to our show to realize like you're smart people. You can, you can do this. You, you're not incapable of understanding this technical stuff. Um, it just takes a little bit of work and a little bit of effort, but you can do it. So take a look at the theology thing. Um, it'd be interesting, I think, to look at the statements and sort of figure out what you would, how you would answer that question. Uh, you know, if you were to see that statement, what would your first instinct be? And then think about like, what would the average, I don't know, high school student in your youth group, what would they say? Or what would the average, I don't know, like 65 year old retired widow in your church, what would they say about this? Think about those things and then look at, look at that demographic on the survey. You can filter out all those demographics. You can filter it by age. You can filter it by faith tradition, you know, race, gender, all that stuff. You can target a particular person in church and go, what is the average person who fits this demographic? What is the average person who fits my ministry demographic? Maybe you're a youth pastor. Maybe you teach Sunday school for middle school kids. Maybe you maybe you are in charge of like the elderly widow's Bible study at your church, whatever that demographic might be. Slice this down to your demographic that you're ministering to or that you are and look at it. I think the results would probably surprise you. And then that gives us, I think, some of our marching orders for where we need to focus our energy for the next year. For sure. It's super illustrative in the ability to be able to drill down into specific like subcategories or demographics or like psychographic data. That's, I mean, just from a person who enjoys statistics, that's that's super interesting. I also want to just like piggyback on this. And of course, now Affirmation Denials have become its own episode. Yeah. Let me say this though. This podcast goes out to the internet in like various means, one of which is like some people may not be aware that it also gets published to YouTube. So occasionally we get commentary then because it goes out into various ways in different means. And I want to say like the whole purpose of being able to have specific nuanced theology that has strong fidelity to the scriptures that systematizes what the scriptures teach is the whole purpose of that. If anybody's thinking like what we're trying to do here is just kind of convey information, this is like a classroom exercise so I can feel smarter or more knowledgeable or be able to say statistics or facts to other Christians so that you feel like you're more equipped to understand what the Bible teaches is not what we're after. Right. The whole purpose of this is, and, and this is very Pauline, is that the scriptures itself through the systematization of what they teach would bring us to greater appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ greater sense of piety and obedience to his word and more abundant lives. And so I just want to say like, we received some commentary on this recently and I want to say, sister Allison, we see you and we <laughs> hear you. And she had given us a commentary recently about just the fact of like listening to this whole conversation about salvation and understanding that we can't be good enough. You know, what we talked about and getting into the nuance of what theology teaches us about, like how soteriology moves, like logically, progressively, like all of this is to help us understand that God does it all. And when you understand that God does it all, it frees you up in like dramatic ways. 
So I'm just going to springboard this really quickly into my affirmation. And that is that I'm just affirming that our God sees each person and he does work in each person. And our God is one who can break chains and bring freedom. Yeah. So I don't know whoever's listening to this, if you need to hear this, but I just had the privilege this past weekend to fulfill one of my lifelong dreams, as some listeners would know, and that is to finally participate and attend a women's <laughs> retreat. <laughs> <laughs> and I was able to do this because I, I, I sneaked in very cleverly under the guise of being able to play guitar uh, for the time of worship through music. And I saw some things and was ministered to in ways that are absolutely profound. And I saw God do some things in the lives of women in our church where he absolutely destroyed boundaries, just crumbled walls, took off chains, brought freedom. And I think we sometimes think that like, especially in foreign faith, like everything is all head knowledge. It's all education. It's all what we can do to appreciate and to acknowledge and to move forward in some kind of greater degree of intellectual scent that would lead us to dexology. But our God is one who comes in oftentimes in the center of our being to remove or replace or to refine our emotions. And he just brings us freedom. And I was able to see that in a way that I think for a dude is often just outside of my sphere or scope of influence or understanding. And it's, it rocked my world. I'll just be totally honest. Yeah. And it made me realize that I put God oftentimes, even as I try to say that I don't in this box and he is a God that can come and deal with each person, does good work in each person, and that can do things where if you've ever thought, I'm, this kind of thing is just too far ingrained in me. I have these patterns, this behavior, these thought patterns, this habitual nature that cannot be undone. It's just part of who I am. And so I fight and I cope. God can and will do away with those things. It's not to say that he makes us perfect in this life. It is to say that he fights the battles with you and for you. And I just want to affirm that our God is one who brings those kind of things. So if you're in a place where you've often thought, I just can't get underneath this. The thumb of sin is too strong. The, the thumb of self is too big. I feel too pressed down. Uh, that's not who our God is. And he is able to deal with those things. And I think that we ought to respect the fact that all of theology is to bring us to a point where we come and surrender before him and say, Lord, I have belief, but help my unbelief. I am weak and I need relief and forgiveness. Would you come and do that? I need strength because all I have is nothing. I, I can't even come before you with open arms or empty hands. I can't even bring that much. All I can do is say, would you come and rescue me? And he does because he is that big and he is that good. Yeah. So I'm just affirming that that is who our, our God is. And there is no one like our God. Yeah. You know what this, that statement leads me to? What? <laughs> it leads me to a wicked awesome chart and our episode here. So let's do it. We, we, as I've, as we've said, like we're in this, the middle of this mini series story arc, whatever we want to call it about soteriology. And we've been trying to take slightly different approaches to the main headings of soteriology because we've done episodes on what, you know, the definitions of justification, definitions of, of sanctification. And we've done episodes on that and we'll do more episodes on that. These, these are topics that Christians have to keep coming back to again and again. But we wanted to talk today a little bit about the question, what is repentance? Because I think 
the I, I guess if there's been a theme in our sort of like second approach or our reapproach of these in the last several episodes, it's been Christians think they understand what this means, but in reality, we 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 miss it. We don't understand what it means. And so I'm looking at a chart here. Um, I'm looking at it in Logos Bible Software. This episode is not brought to you by Logos Bible Software, but in this case, my knowledge is. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at a chart in William Perkins. Um, oh yeah, works of William Jesse. I just lit up. He knows exactly yes. which chart I'm looking at. Uh, it's it's William Perkins, works of William Perkins, Volume Six. It's in his work on the Golden Chain, and he has this beautiful diagram that I'm actually thinking about getting tattooed on my back. Uh, called the go- it's called the Visual Catechism. You should. And there's a lot of information. But one of the things that I think is amazing, and this is, should just be such a huge source of comfort before we go into our topic, because this concept of what is repentance can really be a burden for the saints, and it really shouldn't be. Because as we'll find out, it's actually a gift that God gives us. It's not something we have to fulfill. But he has this thick white line, and if you look at his sort of key, he says, the white line shows the order of the causes of salvation from the first to the last. And this thick white line starts at the top of the chart in a circle that says the Father. And there's just this thick white line that goes through all of the different sort of steps or components in the Ordo Salutis. And what that is meant to underscore is this is God's work through and through all the way. And so when you, Christian, feel like there's this weight of repenting enough or doing enough good works, am I sanctified enough? Is my just is my faith strong enough? All of these questions that plague us, right? All of these questions go back to the fact that God is the author and perfecter. And I when we when we think perfecter, we're thinking along the lines of like making something perfect, and that's fine. Like that's a part of it. It's probably more accurate in terms of the concept being communicated. God is the author and completer of our faith. He is the one who starts the process. He authors it. He completes it. And he's faithful to bring us to the end right in Christ Jesus. And so this, this is a chart that I think if, if every Christian just like printed it up and put it on their wall and every day looked at a different element of it and, and pondered it and thought about it and looked at the Bible verses associated with it, it would be an immense source of comfort for the Christian. And so where we're going to land today and sort of focus is on this concept of repentance and what repentance is. Because this, again, is one of those things that Christians, for a lot of reasons, but primarily because of the impact of things like the Billy Graham Crusades and the evangelical focus on choice, decisional regeneration— then kind of fused together and driven forward in a particularly reformed flavor, the Lordship Salvation controversy, we've been trained to think that repentance is the beginning of our Christian life, right. that it is the beginning of what it means to be a Christian. And in some sense, even though we're all quick to say sola fide means that faith alone is the instrumental means of salvation, in some sense, we look at justification as being dependent on on redemption or on repentance. So understanding what repentance is and answering the question and saying, it's not that, it's not that, that's not what causes our justification, I think is a really, really important thing for Christians to sort of get their head around. Now we can have some discussions and debates and there are valid positions within, does repentance come before justification? Does it come after justification? Is it wrapped up in justification? You know, where specifically in the Ordo Salutis it is, that's fine. But anytime we make repentance to be a cause of our justification, that's where we're going to run aground. That's where we're going to start to lose our assurance, because that's something we do. Repentance is something we do. 
And anytime we introduce something we do into justification, we're going to undercut our assurance. If not, if not our salvation itself, we're going to undercut our assurance of salvation by trying to import our own works into what it is that causes justification. Yeah, that's right on because it, it strikes me that there is a good proclivity there. So like when confronted with the immensity of God's holiness and the reality of sin, that should frighten and sicken us. And the redemptive work of Christ should thrill us to the core. So together, the truth of like those two biblical doctrines should provoke a desperate question in the sinner's heart. It's the same type of question we talked about this before that I I think plagued those who heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. They basically say, listen, well, the scripture tells us they were pierced to the heart. And then they said, brethren, what shall we do? What do we need to do to be saved? And Peter's response is repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I think what we're saying is we acknowledge almost all Christians would writ large that repentance has some part to play. What is that part? And is it our part? Is it a part that comes from somebody else? Is it a part that comes from the inside? And I do think with what you said is right on point because... There are some people, some of my dear friends who struggle with this because what they'll say is like, well, I don't have enough faith. I don't have like the the faith you have, or I don't know that I can repent in the same way. I don't know that I can turn away from all of these things that plague me. So like, what gives then? Because like from an evangelical perspective, it's critically important to distinguish like true saving faith from this mere idea of like intellectual or mental like assent. Faith is not simply like an acknowledgement of Christ. It's an active dependence on him born out of a life of the believer in the form of repentance. So I guess all I've done is just brought us back to what is then repentance? Yeah, well, as we usually do, I'm going to go to the Westminster Larger Catechism to give us an answer that is far better than anything Jesse and I would have come up on our own. True that. And it's uh, founding question 76. The question is, what is repentance unto life? Which the question itself should give you some of the answer, right? What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sin, and upon the apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sin as that he turns away from them all to God, proposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in the ways of new obedience. And so one of the one of the main controversies that you'll run into when people are talking about repentance is where does repentance fall? Is it part of our sanctification? Is it a cause of our justification? You know, is it some other category? Is it is its own distinct thing in the ordo salutis? And by and large, the reformed the reformed confessional tradition has understood repentance either implicitly, which I think this is where the Westminster is, right? Implicitly, the way that it talks about repentance places it within the realm of sanctification, right? It's it's an already um, an already justified, effectually called person who loves Jesus Christ and now recognizes out of that love for Jesus Christ that he must turn away from his sin, right? So there's an implicit placement in uh, the Christian in sanctification. Or in someone like Perkins here, it's explicitly an outcome of sanctification. So right. if you follow this chain down, sanctification, I'm going to describe the chart here because that's really good podcasting. But when you when you start to work your way down the, the um, chart, there's several columns. The center column is all the things that God does. 
the uh, there's kind of like a middle column between the center column that is sort of like the Ordo Salutis itself, like specific elements of the Ordo Salutis. And then just to the left of that are big, broad categories like justification, sanctification. And what it does is it shows you what happens as a result of sanctification. And as a result of sanctification is the mortification of sins, the vivification of righteousness, right? That's how the Westminster Confession defines sanctification in part, is this increasing ability to, to die unto sin, mortification, to live unto righteousness, vivification. And then right. as a result of that coming to life in Christ, that ability to live in Christ more and more, repentance occurs. And out of repentance comes new obedience, which leads down the chain further. So repentance is not this cause of our salvation. It's not this cause of justification, which is what we're so used to hearing, right? Repent and believe and you will be saved. Well, that's a true statement. That's just the, that's just the Bible. But what does that mean? right? Repent and believe. Does that mean if you don't repent enough, if you don't repent properly, that you suddenly are not justified? Well, how is that not just works righteousness? Exactly. Instead, repentance is something that the Spirit gives us as he reveals to us our sin. He gives it to us as a way for us to turn away from that sin, turn towards righteousness, and walk towards Jesus. And then that leads us to then live a life of increased obedience. So, I really can't say enough about Perkins work on this. Um, if, if you only ever read one thing by William Perkins, read the golden chain. It's dense, it's hard, but it is so good. And it is just a salve for your soul because it's, it runs so contrary to what modern evangelical tell evangelicalism tells you about the causes of salvation, the causes of growth and holiness. It's not this bootstrap theology where like you, you just pick yourself up and dust yourself off and work a little harder. And that's how you get, that's how you increase your holiness. That's how you increase your sanctification. It's not that instead it's this, this entirely God saturated process where even our own repentance is driven by God's empowerment and his right. his calling to us his effectual calling drives us to repentance right so it we really have to answer this question carefully or we will lead the saints to despair it may be helpful for some to hear to your point that like the scripture often refers to faith and repentance in tandem so for those that are well acquainted with the reformed tradition i think most would acknowledge that faith comes from God himself, that he implants, that he empowers, that he gives that faith. So if we unite those together, then we have a different perspective on the source of repentance. They come in tandem. The two correspond closely in the life of the believer, and the scriptures actually bear that out. So turning away from sin and repentance is the natural extension of turning to Christ, to Christ in faith. So for example, like in the Old Testament, the word for repentance is shuv. That again is a word of turning around, going 180 degrees in a different direction. And so when like you read Psalm 80, like verses 3, 7, 19, there is this prayer that's offered to God. And the prayer is, turn us, turn us, O God. So it's a request. God is doing that turning that we may be saved or restore us, that we may be saved. In other words, the word shuv in Hebrew means this idea to turn around from sin and to turn toward God. It's not like as if, it's just a matter of if you had enough strength, you could maneuver your body to move, move yeah. in a different direction. It's that to be oriented toward God is only something that God can do. It's a drawing of yourself to him, which in some ways reflects this implanting of the Holy Spirit, which in fact turns you toward God. And that turning is repentance. 
And so it must come from God, is promulgated by God. Its source and its light, its strength is in its essential nature of God. And so there we find that all of repentance, the ability to even acknowledge that you ought to turn away and to have an object to turn towards by your own volition comes from God supplanting, or I would say like transforming the mind and the heart to see those things. All of this comes from God. There is a sense in which we can get preoccupied with, I haven't turned enough or have I done enough or have I apologized enough? And that's not what God is concerned with. What God is concerned with is the fact that when he comes and arrests the heart, he does this surgery and always he does a surgery in which he takes out that heart of stone and replaces it with one of flesh. You cannot do that surgery yourself. It is impossible. And so faith and repentance are inextricably linked together. They come in tandem. And I often find it helpful to think of those things in those terms. Yeah. I want to read a little bit out of um, the book of Romans here. And this is, this is, I think, I don't know that I would call this a proof text for where repentance falls in the Ordo Salutis, but I think that this reorients or should reorient the way that we think about repentance and, and sort of God's causing it. So this is out of chapter two. Um, I'm going to start reading in verse two here. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He's talking about the things practiced particularly in chapter one, but then especially practice things where people stand in judgment over others that they then themselves do. Uh, The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? And then verse four says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And I think where this is kind of congealing in my head here, I think that a lot of times evangelicalism, kind of decisionalism or decisional theology, Billy Graham crusades, you know, like old school evangelistic crusades, really what we're meant to understand is that it's God's wrath that leads us to repentance, right? It's the fear of God's wrath that leads us to repentance. Um, you know, it's that fire and brimstone. If you don't turn from your sins, you'll burn forever. And and that's certainly a true statement, right? There, there's not, it's not that that's a lie, but it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. Well, who, to whom does God show kindness? He shows kindness to his people. He shows kindness to those whom he has chosen before the foundations of the world, whom he has called, whom he has foreknown, whom he's justified, right? Amen. So, so, Repentance is a gift that God gives to his people, right? This, I mean, there's so many tie-ins to like reformed theology about limited atonement or definite atonement, whatever you want to call it, kind of tulip theology. It's not God's wrath and the fear of God's wrath that leads us to repentance, right? It's, it's not only out to use the language of the, the catechism question. It's not only out of a sense of the danger of sin, which is kind of that wrath element, it's out of the sense of the odiousness of that sin. Well, that doesn't sound like something non-Christians recognize, right? Non-Christians don't recognize sin as odious. They don't recognize it as something that's filthy or disgusting that they need to turn away from. All of that language is designed in the, the confession or the catechism. That's why I say it's kind of implicitly there. It's designed to signal to you, this is something Christians do. 
This isn't what makes you a Christian. This is something you do because you are a Christian. Exactly. And so I think, you know, sometimes like there can be these sort of trite approaches to like, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know that I haven't committed the unforgivable sin? The sort of trite approach to that is like, well, if you're worried about it, then you, you probably don't have to worry about it. Right. And there's a, there's a little bit of wisdom in there. Like someone who has committed the unforgivable sin is not particularly concerned about the fact that they've committed the unforgivable sin. So if you're concerned about it, it's a good sign that you haven't done it. That's a little bit trite. There's an element of truth to it. But more so, when you sin, and then you have this urge and this impulse to repent of that sin, not because you're trying to get out from underneath God's wrath, but because you recognize out of gratitude that God has done everything for you, right? That right old guilt, grace, gratitude formula from the, the Heidelberg Catechism. When you recognize that out of gratitude for the Lord, you should apologize to him and be sorry for the times that you've let him down, that you've failed to meet his expectations, that you've failed to worship him and honor him as is due to his name. The fact that you seek to, to be forgiven for that, the fact that you seek to turn from that and to endeavor to walk in new purpose and new holiness of life, that is a really good indicator that that repentance itself tells you that you are already his child, that you are already turned away from your sins in the salvific sense. And now God is continuing to turn you away from your sins in this sort of sanctification sense. He's now turning you away from the death of sin and towards the life of righteousness. That is something that should encourage Christians where I fear sometimes that, and I, I don't, I don't know. Paul Washer can be a mixed bag. Some of his stuff is so good, and some of it can be really, really just destructive and and discouraging. I'm talking about you. Yeah, I'm talking about... I'm not sure why you're clapping. I'm talking about you, Paul Washer. If Paul Washer's clapping for us, that'd be pretty cool. Um, (laughs) I'm not actually talking about you. Um, this, This constant harping on you haven't repented enough. You haven't, you haven't confessed your sins enough. To me, that just strikes me as like just one step away from like Roman Catholic penitence, right? Like you just have to like repent a little bit more and then like God will really save you. And I know that's not explicitly what people like Paul Washer are saying, but unfortunately that's kind of the message that gets taken away by a lot of people. And I just think if, if we hear one thing out of today's episode is that God's kindness to you as a already saved, justified Christian who is already heaven bound and it can never be any other way. His kindness to you is that he does continue to turn you away from your sins and towards his son. That's the kindness of repentance. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't expect it. It was such like a powerful ending right there. I thought there was going to be more said. Uh, I'm with you because it's almost as if the good news of the gospel is like such amazing, exponentially good news that in like every way that you look at it, it's so good news that you can't possibly understand it. So we would, we would think about like the good news of of Christ condescending that God giving son. Well, it's like good news, but we're talking about like these increasing. So like the gospel is basically, I'm trying to think of like the, the proper Maybe it's like a scone or like, it's some kind of like flaky pastry and you keep like peeling away the layers, but every layer is like both immaculate, exponentially good news. So yeah. you get through like the the top layer, which is just that God loves you. Like John 3, 16, you're like, man, that's like really good news, right? And you're like, yeah, it's amazing news. You, yeah. you take off like that layer, you eat it and you're like, man, this is like delicious buttery pastry. And then you're like, the, the next layer is just that like God w- wants for you to have abundant life. And he, he comes and meets you like in a prodigal way, prodigal son kind of way to where you're at. And you're like, 
Well, that's like super delicious. Good news. And then like you keep peeling away. And then what you find is that like, listen, it's not just that God has done all this stuff that like you can't apologize, apologize enough. And yet he accepts by the blood of Christ, your feeble forgiveness and says like, you are now made righteous. And like, yeah. you know, cut to like Luther, who's like, I've been saying this the whole time, like this blessed <laughs> exchange, you know? And yeah. so like you take away that layer and you just keep finding all along that God is doing everything that God is doing. Because like, we still think in some way, I think like deep down in our psyche, we still think that there's something in us that God saw. Yeah. That like, I was going to be a, at least a decent Christian, a decent human being. Yeah. And God's like, that's exact opposite. <laughs> like <laughs> I saw nothing in you. Yeah. And it was because I chose you, not because I've works done in righteousness, but just because of my great mercy. So like we find, and it's clear in the scriptures that true repentance is not manufactured. It's not manufactured ex ante, like before it's not manufactured ex post or afterwards. So like we look at like, like Acts 11, which I have up in front of me, uh, compliments of Logos Bible software, who's no longer <laughs> endorsing this episode. Um, not because they don't love us, but because just like the contract ran out. So um, <laughs> Peter's reporting to the church about the conversion of the Gentiles. And here's what he says. If then God gave the same gift to them, that is the Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So in other words, like when they heard the things, all these things, they, they fell silent. And then they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. God granted repentance yeah. that leads to life. And then in case uh, that wasn't enough, second Timothy uh, chapter two, verse 24 and following. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here we have like in every way, God granting, God illuminating, God bringing to glory himself by way of repentance. And so herein we find like, I don't know, what are we down? Like six, eight, 10, 20, a hundred, a thousand layers of this delicious pastry yeah. of the gospel. And there we find that God is still doing the thing. God is in every way bringing about that which we could not accomplish. So it's not just about like, well, listen, I'm a disobedient person at heart. I want to push against and fight God in every way. And so God comes and he gives me that obedience of Christ. But it, it's the fact of the matter is that in every way that we could possibly think of, that the, the wanting to turn away from God is not your own inclination. It's an inclination that was implanted, supplanted your human nature, comes from the outside, is in every way alien righteousness. And so we just find ourselves on our knees saying, thank you, God, that you would choose me. Again, yeah. not because I've done anything, not because even after the fact I will do something, but because you are good and merciful and kind. So I think that in many ways, like you're saying, this just gives us a different sense of freedom. We don't take pride in our repentance. It's not because I somehow understood something in a more profound way or did more research or it became more sensitive. It's because God has done this thing and implanted faith and then given us repentance. And because he gives it, it means that it is validated or justified before himself because it comes through Jesus Christ, his son, and it comes under the application of the Holy Spirit, which is his spirit yeah. and not ours. 
And so then we understand that God never delivers up the baby to be left on the doorstep. He always gives us repentance and holds safe and steadfast our salvation. And so however you understand like the logical way in which that salvation unfolds, what we're saying is God holds it safe and secure. And man, is that a good feeling, isn't it? Like to know that what we do then henceforth from that ex post after that is because God has empowered us with his love to bring about the indicative and the imperative. And so we obey him because we love him and because he has changed us. It's not the other way around as if those things somehow vet and prove that we are worthy and that our repentance was somehow legitimate. It's just completely the other way around. So, I mean, we're just getting at the hour mark, Tony. And I think we're setting ourselves up for another four or six hours, right? Of talking about this because we could spend all of our breath until we die talking about how good it is that God would save a single person and that he would grant repentance as the scriptures tells us that he does in his kindness. And so I would say, this is the first time I'm going to say it. This is not going to be the definitive episode because we, we need to spend our entire lifetimes and then all of eternity talking about how good our God is that he would give us repentance. Yeah, I feel like this episode has turned into like a late night infomercial where it's like, <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> but wait, there's more. There like I feel more. like every time we we land on a part of this, but wait, there's more. And uh, maybe that's like the tagline of our podcast, but wait, there's more. So I, I think you're right. This is something we, we can and must and will continue to talk about. Um, you know, we've got lots of exciting stuff planned for, for the rest of this series and and we're not quite sure exactly where it's going to go once we get past the immediate future, but it's just such a joy and a blessing to talk about this stuff because there is, there is this sense that a lot of us who came up in sort of broadly evangelical contexts, right? People who came to faith at Billy Graham crusades or at acquire the fire, like we, we came up on this theology that most of the burden of this stuff was placed fully on our shoulders. And to be honest, I'm surprised any of us made it. Like I've, <laughs> right I've, on. I've reflected on the fact that like when you listen to contemporary Christian music that was popular among the teens in that time period, right? Like Jars of Clay or, or there's a band called Clear or Cademan's Call, like those kinds of bands, there is this weird introspective despair about assurance of salvation that is a prominent theme in all of those bands. And you have to ask why. And it, it's it's the theology, right? Theology matters, people. Like we have to get this right. Because if you stand in front of if you're a pastor and you stand in front of a congregation and tell them that their their salvation is in any sense dependent on the quality or quantity of their own repentance, you're preaching another gospel. And Paul has some strong words for you at that point. Right. Now that's not to say we can't have some disagreements about the exact place in the order of salvation or in the Historia Salutis, the the order of things in time that repentance happens. That's not to say that we shouldn't assess people's repentance and call them out when it's not genuine or when it's not sufficiently robust or whatever you want to say. But when we make our salvation in any sense dependent on that, the quality or quantity of our repentance— that's despair. That's just nothing but despair that you're right. going to be piling on your people. And if you're out doing street evangelism and someone says, what must I do to be saved? And your answer is you've got to repent fully of your sins. Well, you might as well just walk away from them at that point because they can't do that. 
Like even 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 in this life, the Holy Spirit doesn't grant that to us. Full, complete, total repentance of sins. Even in this life, the Spirit doesn't grant that to us. So I'm glad we have this conversation. I'm glad that this has been a different approach than what we've we've had in the past. I'm hoping that we're we're reinforcing and edifying the saints who are listening to our show that this is all about Jesus. It's all about what he's done for us. It's all about Amen. what he's doing for us. And it's all about what he will do for us in the future. That's that's what soteriology is. It's the study of what Jesus has done for his people, right? We get all bogged down in like the nuances of justification and the technicalities of it. But at the end of the day, soteriology is about the soter, right? The, the, the saviorology is what we're studying here. So, man, I, I just, I, I don't know how to come down from that because it's such a glorious <laughs> truth. And like, you're right, Amen. there's always more. And, and that's is. the beauty of it. There's always a deeper level to understand what Jesus has done for us. We're never going to plumb those depths. For all eternity, we're going to be studying that more. And that really is just a, a blessed, blessed assurance. It is a blessed assurance. It's the gospel croissant. Yes. It so is everybody the turn in your hymnals to number whatever blessed assurance. Well, yes. Yes. Spe- uh, speaking of music, this I think hopefully a decent way to end this whole conversation is you don't just have to think about or process the truth. You can sing it. One of my favorite bands, Citizens and Saints, has a song called You Have Searched Me. So look this up. Citizens and Saints, You Have Searched Me. And let me just, as we close, read a couple of these lyrics because they, they tie in exactly with what you said. The lyrics go like this. You have searched me and know my heart. Before I spoke, you know my every thought. The wonder of your knowledge is far too high for me to understand. You knew I'd leave your side and cower in the cover of the night, but there's no place I could hide from the mercy of your light. Your kindness leads me to repentance. Your grace assures me to trust in you. Yeah. Well, until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm part of-